Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Serge Saxonoff. Serge is the co-founder and CEO of Pleasanton, California-based 10X Genomics. This privately held company, in a nutshell, is a fast-growing supplier for the genomics revolution. 10X, for those unfamiliar, makes instruments, chemical reagents for running experiments, and software that helps scientists gather and analyze a variety of omic types of data. The tools are allowing researchers to move away from some of the fuzzier measurements of the past and more toward high-resolution analysis of single cells. 10X has positioned itself to enable scientists in fields like cancer research, immunology, gene editing, and others to ask and answer a lot of ambitious questions. And the company's grown fast. A recent financing pegged its valuation at more than a billion dollars. Serge also happens to have a very interesting life story. He was born in the former Soviet Union and emigrated to the U.S. as a teen, just before the collapse of the communist empire. He blossomed as a student at Bronx Science and then at Harvard, studying under the early genomics evangelist Wally Gilbert. He had a formative early career experience at 23andMe. Now, before I get started, I want to mention a couple of events to mark on your calendars. I'm organizing the Cancer Summit series this spring to raise money for cancer research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. This is part of the $1 million Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer campaign that I'm leading this year. David Shankine of GV, John Reed of Santa Fe, Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine are just a few of the industry leaders coming together for the Boston Cancer Summit on April 16. This event is a big fundraiser that's part of the overall campaign. And then a couple days later, on April 18, you can hear from Hal Barron at GSK, Ira Melman at Genentech, and Bonnie Anderson of Verisite, plus the 10X Genomics co-founder Ben Heinsen, all of whom will be among the distinguished group of speakers at the San Francisco Cancer Summit. That event is going to be on April 18, once again. Now, for all the details on these events, including links to buy tickets, you can go to TimmermanReport.com and click on the Kilimanjaro Climb button at the top. This is a free and shareable section of my site. Everything you need to know about the events and where to buy tickets is here. Not only will these events be phenomenal networking opportunities, but 100% of your ticket purchase will go toward cancer research at Fred Hutch. Now, real quick, there are two other terrific biotech community events to tell you about. One is the Mass Bio State of Possible Conference. It's coming up March 27 and 28 at the Royal Senesta in Cambridge, Mass. Bruce Booth, George Church, John Mariganori, and Katrine Bosley, a few of those people have been on this podcast, by the way, they are all going to be on the program. You can go to massbio.org to register. And where I'm based in Seattle, there's another standout biotech event coming up the Life Science Innovation Northwest Conference on April 24 and 25. Roger Perlmutter, the president of Merck Research Laboratories, is the keynote speaker at that event. Go to www.lifesciencewa.org to register. You can also use the promo code 2019LUKE, all one word, capital L, to save $100 on your registration fee. Pretty good deal. Now, please join me and Serge Saxonoff of 10X Genomics on the long run.
With me today is Serge Saxonoff, the co-founder and CEO of 10X Genomics. Welcome, Serge. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Well, thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I should tell the listeners, uh, you and I have known each other for some time. Um, 10X Genomics was one of the um, quite generous sponsors of the Climb to Fight Cancer campaign that I did last year for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And, um, you know, it's a funny little story because, you know, when I was starting this out last year, um, casting out a bunch of emails to companies that I thought might be interested in supporting cancer research, um, I thought, well, maybe 10X Genomics would be one of those low-level sponsors, like maybe a few thousand bucks here or there. Um, And uh, I didn't hear anything back, but I did eventually hear from one of your employees who really wanted to talk about something in a much bigger way. And Mm -hmm. 10X ended up becoming one of the biggest sponsors. And and that kind of surprised me because I I didn't really think you guys were that big. (laughs) Um, And and it it made me uh, pay a little more attention to what's going on here. I don't know if you knew that. Well, I, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, but yeah, I think that has been a little bit of a pattern for the last few years for us in the, in the sense that people have been surprised by how quickly we have grown and how much of an impact we've had recently. Uh, but very happy to, to sponsor. And that's certainly one of the um, one of the Im- sort of missions of the company that I feel is ultimately impacting cancer and the hope that the, the kinds of things we do will help find cures. Yeah, well, that's great. We will uh, we will get into that as we go. But um, for starters, I would like to uh, ask a little bit about you as a person and how you got to this point in time, this this interesting opportunity at Ten X. So, just for starters, where were you born and raised? Yeah, so I was born in Moscow, USSR. Um, there was actually USSR back then, and I was raised in a place called Tajikistan. Um, it's in Central Asia. It's kind of interesting because when growing up, you kind of feel like that's, you know, that's the center of the world and uh, that's where everything happens. In fact, you know, growing up in Soviet Russia, uh, I remember being like being a little kid thinking to myself, ah, like, what are the chances that I would be born in the best country in the history of the world? Um, <laughs> of course, it turned out to be close to the opposite um, of, uh, of truth. But uh, it's interesting to see just kind of looking back to uh, you know, now being in the Bay Area and uh, being in the middle of a lot of uh, sort of the frontiers of things that are happening in the world and thinking back to, you know, was actually kind of almost started at the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, wow, this is really interesting. So, Serge, I think you and I are about the same age, like in your 40s. So you would have been growing up 70s and 80s? Uh, so, yeah. So late 70s and then throughout the 80s. We left uh, USSR at the very end of uh, 89. Um, and uh, got to the States in, in 1990. Wow. I mean, right up until uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. This was like Glasnost, Perestroika, that stuff was in oh, the yeah. air. Yeah, no, absolutely. And things were just, uh, it was really interesting, especially towards the end, things were changing really rapidly over there. All of a sudden you had uh, like a massive inflation and you, you started seeing stacks of rubles being traded in a way that I'd never seen before. And, um, it was a, yeah, it was a fascinating time to 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 leave, and then uh, the the gap. I think one of the things you know, my life has been actually like been very fortunate, and for the most part, been a very pretty monotonic sort of increase improvement. But one of the things that's been pretty uh, distinct, and I think very few people um, kind of experience that, is this discontinuity. When we you know one one day we were leaving, um, kind of going through customs in Russia, and my dad was you know bribing with big stacks of rubles. 
and then uh, through the call the next day we're in Austria and uh, the world is totally different and much better. Uh, that's uh, that's a kind of contrast that's um, that's kind of pretty hard to come across and I still kind of think back. Um, wow, so how old were you when this happened? I was uh, just about to turn 13. Um, and so you wow. have, yeah, you're old enough to kind of understand the world to some extent, uh, but I guess young enough to still kind of be uh, soaking it all in and forming a lot what of did your uh, parents what did your parents do so my dad uh, was a mathematician he taught at the local college uh, and my mom was a hydrogeologist uh, she also taught at a different local college there um, and uh, once we got to the states my dad ended up being uh, moving into finance and uh, kind of being a um, finance investment manager uh, my mom ultimately kind of moved into software development Wow. Okay. So, um, did you have, uh, siblings? Yeah, I have a sister who is, uh, about 10 years younger. Um, than the, she was with us on the journey. So there was four of us that, uh, kind of emigrated. So and, the whole uh, family makes the move and it was, I mean, this sounds like it, it could have still been a risky thing. I mean, this was not officially authorized immigration. Uh, well, it was by that point, there was a path for people to leave uh, USSR that was reasonably well trodden. And by that point, I mean, those few years, late 80s. But it is a pretty remarkable move. I give my dad a lot of credit where he just he kind of made this commitment to move. And there is a particular point where you ask to leave the country and there is no turning back. You become kind of a persona non grata within the, the country. And, uh, you know, that from that point on, you don't have citizenship, you don't have rights, and you only have one way to go. And give him a lot of credit for kind of taking that, uh, taking that step and, uh, uh, and, uh, and making the move. You went to Austria first. Uh, was the plan always to come to the United States? Yeah. And that was, uh, again, so this, the weird combination of result of Cold War politics where the path for uh, refugee immigrants out of USSR had to go through Austria because there was a reasonably neutral, I guess, sort of ground. And then we actually went to Italy, both of those, for a couple of months in both of those places. And then we ended up in the, in the States. But yeah, the goal was to go, to get to to the U.S. Okay. Um, now, did your dad uh, or mom have the jobs lined up at that point? Or was this just, you know, come to the U.S., find a place to live and uh, start looking mm -hmm. around and making a new life? Uh, yeah, it's totally the, the, the latter. There was no jobs were lined up. I mean, the I think my parents had reasonable confidence that just their educational background was going to be something that was going to be useful mistakes, but uh, no, nothing concrete at all. And initially we were held by um, sort of Jewish organizations that helped Russian Jewish immigrants, which is what, uh, yeah, what we were to come to the States. But uh, yeah, my dad uh, pretty quickly found a job. Initially, actually I was teaching high school and then, uh, uh, and then with uh, MetLife, which is where he kind of um, ended up building a career. Okay. What part of the U.S. did you settle in? Uh, in New York, uh, in Washington Heights, which uh, you you know, if you know sort of the history of the early '90s, was not the nicest area <laughs> in the country, um, and uh, it was Upper Manhattan sort of neighborhood. It wasn't uh, wasn't in the the best neighborhood, but uh, having said that, it was kind of it was an interesting contrast because we went from being um, reasonably high status back in um, you know, in USSR to being very much at the bottom, at least kind of in terms of status hierarchy. But uh, we were like incredibly happy and fortunate 
because our standard of living at the same time has increased tremendously from that move. Well, at least the currency was stable. <laughs> um, so um, did you speak English? I spoke a little bit. Um, I had, when we got to the States, I think the biggest actually, <laughs> the, the, the biggest amount of learning that I did was by studying for an exam to get into a magnet public high school in New York. One of the things that we, we, we I was really afraid of when we got there is that you hear all these uh, horror stories about public schools in New York back then. And so it made it my mission to, to, to get into a, a, one of the magnet schools. It was Bronx Science. And so I ended up studying a lot for the verbal section of that exam. In fact, memorizing lots of words and uh, vocabulary in order to, to pass it. Presumably, I mean, your dad being a mathematician, does this run in the family? <laughs> you were pretty good at numbers? Yeah, math was reasonably easy. Um, and in fact, and partially by family, partially sort of the education in the USSR when it came to math was fairly strong and well ahead of what was taught in schools in the US. So you end up Bronx Science, this famous magnet um, school. Uh, what was that experience like for you? It was uh, interesting. I mean, those, this is the time very much when you're trying to kind of understand the world. And to some extent, it's a whole new world for me, right? Kind of moving to this new country and uh, trying to, I remember thinking you still kind of come with this idea that you, um, well, in order to get into college, you just need to pass a test. And then kind of midway through, maybe a little after the first year, someone told me, it's like, actually, your grades matter a lot. And uh, that was a big shock and revelation to me because my grades were horrible the first year of high school. Um, so, you know, that took some, um, but again, as my English improved and uh, as I got more awareness of just general cultural elements and so on, it got, got to be pretty, uh, pretty fun. And I would say one of the things also that was uh, striking thinking back about high school that was, uh, that was important is I took a freshman year biology course and most people, especially kind of math oriented people, my, my kinds of friends, people in math team and such, uh, tend to look down on biology. Uh, it tends to be, I guess, a lot of memorization and not as, as interesting, but I happen to have a, like an amazing teacher who made me, um, made me really interested in, in biology and that, that thread had, uh, had sort of persevered and nurtured through the years. And I think that's one of the things that made it, made ultimately a pretty big impact on me. Just that standard freshman biology that everybody takes. Um, you happen to have a good teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it made it very, very interesting and fascinating, whatever it was that was a combination of, of factors. And this was the early 90s. So th this is like nobody's even really talking about the Human Genome Project or, or maybe, you know, <laughs> you know, a few people in the NIH and universities are, but it's not like headline news. Nobody's talking about all, all the exciting things to come. Oh, not at all. But, you know, we did talk a fair amount about molecular biology and biochemistry and some of those basic uh, building blocks. So we're actually fairly advanced thinking back relative to the usual sort of fare that gets taught in freshman biology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So um, you end up going off um, to Harvard. So you must have done pretty well in it in school. Uh, and what did you decide you wanted to study there? 
Yeah, so initially, my you know my parents wanted me to be pre-med, and that was kind of natural. My grandparents were doctors. I had aunts and uncles that were doctors, and you know, in the absence of other ideas, that was kind of my default um, um, inclination. And uh, you know, at some point, you know, fairly early, maybe after you know, sometime my sophomore year or so in college, I kind of realized that being a doctor wasn't really for me. Um, partially it was just the fear of like seeing, you know, the next 30 years of my life pretty well laid out was something that I found just terrifying at that time. And, uh, I chose to major in applied math because that gave me a, you know, I was pretty good at math and B, it gave me optionality to explore different things like biology. And I took other courses because you know, math can be applied in different ways. So in some sense there was, uh, initially it was kind of a way to defer the decision. Uh, but as I, uh, as I was taking courses, there was one point where I was um, just, there was a class that talked, a particular class that talked about um, the origin of introns. And it was a very uh, interesting problem. There was a question of whether introns originated before the appearance of eukaryotes or after. It was a debate back in the field. And uh, they mentioned during the class that uh, one of the biggest proponents of the introns early hypothesis was um, uh, Wally Gilbert, who was at Harvard. And um, I went... I thought that was interesting. I went to talk to him and uh, just got a got a job uh, in in his lab. And uh, by that time, Wally was doing uh, mostly bioinformatics, and that was my exposure for the first time to bioinformatics, which is which is really nice. I wasn't uh, I wasn't very good at the lab, but had some uh, propensity for you know, analysis and uh, and computers, and this allowed me to use computers to do to to discover new biology to do. To, to delve deep into biological systems. Wow. So you were, this was during your undergraduate time, right? right? Yes. And uh, you go meet with Wally Gilbert, <laughs> Nobel winner, <laughs> um, you know, co-founder of Biogen, um, famous guy, proponent of the Human Genome Project. This would have been, um, I guess, mid-90s by, by this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and did he help get you, you know, enthused about bioinformatics as a, a potential career? So I was thinking it was an interesting area to work in at that point. It wasn't so much that I necessarily saw it as a career. Uh, what happened uh, also sometime later, um, a little bit, I was uh, thinking deeply about what is it that I wanted to do. And I came across a, uh, a panel, entrepreneurship panel that they had at Harvard. And I so Wally was actually on that panel and I went to check it out. And it was really interesting. They had uh, several different kind of founders of companies talking about their experiences. And uh, I remember this particular one moment where someone uh, asked a question. is like, well, it, you, you guys make it all sound really good and interesting. But what about your other, other interests? Do you have time to pursue other uh, interests, other things? Or is it all uh, just encompassed by the company? Uh, and uh, one of the people started answering the question and talking about yes, it's challenging to do to have the right balance. It's challenging to 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 manage that, but uh, you make it work. And at some point, Wally and that was kind of his uh, the way he did things. Sometimes he just kind of interjected and su suggested, well, let me interject in here. And I just I would like to say that the the fact that you're asking that question probably means that you're not ready to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, again, it's very much kind of the way that Wally could be, uh, but that's, that really stuck with me and it, um, that really resonated in a sense that uh, this kind of focus, singular focus on building something of value, something of sustained value, 
and letting it be being fully in really resonated with me. And it was one of those times when I, it was around this time that I kind of realized, you know, I, what I really wanted to do, I was wanted to build companies, companies that matter. Um, and that started kind of shifting my thinking towards in terms of what I would want to do after, after college and where I want to be started thinking in terms of like, well, coming out to California specifically and, uh, kind of I had this um, this view both in terms of the weather uh, in terms of the weather and in terms of the kinds of opportunities you could have here which led me to ultimately apply to Stanford and uh, come out to Stanford for grad school but a lot of it was really driven by this idea by by this romantic notion of California and what's possible over here Sure, sure. Um, and uh, there's a time-honored tradition for that, um, especially people that kind of cut their teeth in the, the Harvard-MIT corridor, um, <laughs> <laughs> get tired of winter after a while. But, um, okay, so you come out, this would have been, I think, around 2000, is that right? Yes. Um, to yes, Stanford. Mm hmm Right. For your uh, biomedical informatics graduate degree program. And th so this is right around when the, the first draft of the Human Genome Project is announced. And now it is front page news. Um, a lot of people are interested in this suddenly. Right, for sure. And that was clearly, so the, the, a few different things kind of uh, converged for me at that time when I was choosing choosing grad school, choosing the place to go. And that the Human Genome Project and the way that people were talking about the coming uh, the, the coming wave of data and what we'll be able to do with genomics definitely resonated and also aligned very well with my specific interests and uh, with what I what I could do. And so going to bioinformatics made a lot of sense. And luckily, Stanford was one of the very few places back then that had a program in bioinformatics. But yeah, applied math, that made a lot of sense because you could look at this data, we were generating lots more data and somebody was going to have to analyze it. Exactly. So you go to Stanford and uh, who um, who was your primary influence there? So I work with, uh, in, the, in the lab of uh, Doug Brutlag, who's an early molecular biologist who turned to bioinformatics. And I also work closely with a co-advisor of mine, uh, Seraphim Batsaglu, um, a professor in computer science. And also Paul Berg, who was um, a well-known, uh, another Nobel Prize winner within the biochemistry department at Stanford. Yep, yep. Okay, so uh, was there, uh, what was the, the main drive of your, your thesis project there? So I worked on sequence analysis, uh, doing finding patterns in, in, in genomes for finding, finding transcription factor binding sites, like figuring out how genes get regulated finding epigenetic markers and patterns for what genes get turned on or actually used from a genome uh, to drive all the downstream biology. So very much on the kind of dry analysis side uh, of, uh, of, of the world, uh, kind of combining statistics, computer science and, uh, and, uh, uh, and biology. So during this time in graduate school, I mean, this is really when the tools start enabling a lot more throughput, a lot mm -hmm. more data. Mm -hmm. You can ask a lot more questions. I mean, what you described there with gene expression, I'm guessing you could have done that with kind of earlier generation tools from Affymetrics, the, mm -hmm. the famous gene chips, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's a definitely kind of this wave of new technologies that was coming around and Affymetrics was 
very much the leader uh, in that early early genomics revolution. But you would have had access to, I mean, pretty much all the latest new stuff would have come through those kind of labs that you describe, right? Uh, to some extent, although I was focused mostly on the analysis side of things, and you kind of you end up on uh, when you're in the world of bioinformatics. To some extent, you're you're relying on other people to generate the data, uh, and which was which was fine, uh, which was interesting. But uh, you know, ultimately, when you look at sort of my I guess my career pr progression there, um, going upstream and actually making the tools is 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 what would have been the most powerful. Yeah, you would have been dealing in the world of software. You would you yep. would not have been in a wet lab at this point, I take it. Mm -mm. No, no. Yeah. I was never never good at the wet lab stuff, and I kind of focused at least at that point on being on analysis uh, side of the world. Okay, so you graduate, uh, you, you get your PhD, two thousand six, and uh, you become the. Is this right? The first employee at twenty three and Me. Yeah, so the story there was that we were actually the other thing that was happening around the early two thousands was that. Uh, there was a big uh, growth in web technologies and just the general growth growth of the internet, of course. And uh, at that time, we're thinking uh, in terms of what kinds of businesses me and uh, kind of a lab mate of mine, uh, close friend, we we're always thinking in terms of what kinds of uh, what kinds of opportunities could be kind of enabled by that the whole world of web 2.0, if you remember uh, yeah. that that time. And uh, at some point, uh, Brian actually had a thought, well, thinking, uh, thinking to, to the future, when people start getting sequenced, uh, there's, there will be a need to relate sequence information, their genetics to them. Um, and the most natural way, the best way to do this would be through these kinds of web applications that were just becoming possible with the technologies of the day. And uh, this idea really resonated with us. We felt like we we're very few people could actually build this, but this is something that could be very compelling um, once built as a product, as a company. And we started thinking about forming a company around that. And I remember actually going to talk to Paul, Paul Berg, and telling him, like, this is kind of what I'm planning to do once I'm graduate. And, and his response was like, well, that's a little, um, that's kind of awkward because uh, I'm actually involved. Um, uh, I know of a company that, that may get formed to do something very similar. Paul was on the board of Affymetrics and initially 23andMe was going to be conceived of as a spin-out, kind of a joint venture between Affymetrics and Google. Um, and so we, he put us in touch, uh, myself and Brian put us in touch with uh, uh, Anne uh, Wojcicki and Linda Avey, and there was a third person who was also initially uh, helping to start the company. And uh, our kind of conclusion was, well, instead of trying to start something ourselves, we could we could join Anna and Linda, and uh, you know that's where Twenty Three Me uh, got going, and it was a it was a tremendously fun experience. Okay, so Anna and Linda would have been, I guess, talking with the original investors, more that side of things, and you um, would have been. What would have been your job? Well, basically building that that thing, the product that we envisioned. So it's figuring out, initially figuring out what kind of uh, technology we're going to use. So these genotyping arrays were just becoming avail uh, available. Our initial inclination was to go with Affymetrix. Then we once we came across Illumina, which was also just coming up at that point, it was an upstart that was taking on Affymetrix. We saw the data, the data was, at that point, it was just better data that coming from Illumina. We made the choice to go with those, uh, with, with those, those arrays, that technology, that platform. 
and also started building all the kind of underlying technology for processing all the genotype data and all the features that you'd want to put on top of it in order to relay the data to potential customers, right, consumers. And of course, that entailed hiring people, software developers, bioinformatics people, content curation, all of that. And so kind of the science and technology side of it was what uh, we, we were working on. Now, the genotyping, um, this would have been actual sequence data, right? Not expression data. Now, that was, uh, that was SNP data. That's right. A sequence genotyping yep, yep. data. So yep. I guess this would have been after Illumina had acquired Selexa. So they had that uh, technology. Well, so again, the data was still was using microarrays, but for genotyping. And the okay. company, we were getting going just around the time when Illumina, in fact, acquired Selexa. We made our decision right before that, but that was 2006 or so, kind of the second half of that year. Okay. Okay. So um, so you're building the product <laughs> that uh, became, I mean, what, what 23andMe, I mean, has, yeah, I mean, is famous for. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun, especially when you think about the early moments when you first genotype. We, we were, of course, genotyping ourselves. I was genotyping my family before, and then you're seeing all these patterns and uh, kind of the, you envision something in your mind, and then you're actually seeing it on a computer screen. It was, it was, a, it was a pretty awesome experience. And uh, the whole idea of uh, kind of taking, looking to see what people have found in the literature and imagining how you could give that information to, to customers was was very was it was fundamentally inspiring and invigorating and uh, we, we were building it it was very trying to do it uh, fast and we're building something no one had else had built before it was incredibly exciting and were really, there any surprises really in your uh, in your data thankfully no <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, it was. Uh, it's interesting. Well, of course, you know. Of course, at this point, uh, you see all kinds of cases that pop up, uh, and uh, that we had talked about back in the day. You know, kind of, you know, the frequency of uh, uh, you know, non-paternal cases and such. And of course, you now see examples of that pop uh, come come about. But ultimately, uh, it's you know, we found we found lots of useful things uh, that, uh, that that emerged uh, kind of over the years. Well, for me personally, but for others as well. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person and get two to three articles a week on average. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. More than 65 pharma companies and universities have gotten these group licenses. Ask me about a group license at luke at timmermanreport.com. And have you heard about the Cancer Summit series of events I'm organizing this spring as a volunteer for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center? These events are big fundraisers, part of the $1 million Kilimanjaro Climb to Fight Cancer campaign I'm leading this year. Cancer R&D leaders like Hal Barron of GSK, David Shankine of GV and Agios, and Cindy Peretti of Foundation Medicine will not be climbing with me on the highest peak in Africa, but they are all coming together to speak at these events. Mark your calendars for the Boston Cancer Summit on April 16 and the San Francisco Cancer Summit on April 18. You can go to TimmermanReport.com and click Kilimanjaro Climb for all the details on the speakers, the event agendas, and links to buy tickets. And as a reminder, none of the ticket sales go to me. All of it goes to cancer research at Fred Hutch. Once again, go to TimmermanReport.com and click Kilimanjaro Climb. So you stayed around for about four years 
And uh, what kind of shape was the company in at that point? Um, did, you, did you feel like you had pretty much accomplished what you wanted to do or just have the itch to do something else? You know, there's a, it's kind of both uh, in, a, in a way. There was definitely feelings like, well, we build this product. It was, uh, if you think about kind of the, the, the major, the, this curve, this pricing curve, when we first launched it, it was, uh, uh, the array was close to $1,000 and that's how much we charged uh, per genotyping kit. And that severely limited adoption, as you can imagine. Now the price of uh, arrays dropped and we dropped our prices as we proceeded through the years. But in my mind, I always thought that, well, you know, at some point that price uh, uh, was gonna cross some threshold where it's gonna, well, the product should take off with, with consumers, but it's gonna take some time. And the value of the information was also increasing as a function of these different arrays and genome-wide association studies being used and new genetics being discovered. Uh, but by that point, uh, kind of, I felt like, well, you know, we built the uh, initial version of the product. It was, uh, it's going to take some time for, uh, for things to take off in the in the consumer world, and sort of the marginal value of what I was contributing was uh, somewhat limited at that at that point. And now, yes, I was itching to do something else. And also, part of my, uh, part of what I kind of uh, got during that experience and really internalized is that the limitations of working within the set of existing technologies. We're using Illumina's microarrays and awesome technology, like really great products, but there's there's almost this perverse thing where the things that you most wanted to know back then were the things that were hardest to, to glean from the data. Um, and that put me in mind of, uh, it's the world really needs better tools and uh, new technologies to be able to to see um, to see more biology, and uh, it's around this time that a close friend of mine was uh, calling me up and uh, recruiting me into a company where he was a co-founder. Started a couple of years before, where they they built a technology for measuring DNA really precisely called Droplet Digital PCR, and uh, the technology seemed to work really nicely. And they needed someone to run applications. What is it that where can we apply that technology? And the company was Quantalife, and ultimately I joined him there as an early employee. Uh huh. So Quantalife, and this is you. You do a couple years there. Um, what was uh, what was the big learning in that experience? So the biggest thing it was so for me coming over from very much sort of the software analysis world and twenty three me again was uh, we saw ourselves very much as an uh, kind of analytics and web company. Um, at that time, the you know the, the people that were there were very much similar to kind of the mall that I was from. Coming going to Quanta Life was a very different world. I was the only person of my kind initially in that company. Uh, everyone else was dealing with you know chemistry and hardware and reagents, and that's kind of a different speaking a different language. And it's it was invigorating. It's like jumping headfirst into you know cold pool of water. Like it's uh, it's a different world. But you could see um, the kind of progress we we're making was really mind bending. How fast we we're moving and making, and a lot of it was really uh, a function of uh, the different disciplines working together uh, closely. And that I think that that was the central learning that I got, and I felt it viscerally. Just how productive these partnerships can be when you're working with people well outside of your area, but if you can communicate and kind of work on common goals together. Now, were you in senior management at this point, or, or right. were you still getting your hands dirty in, in a lot of the work? 
No, I mean, to some extent, both. When the company is, is small, <laughs> you end up doing both. But yes, I was in uh, senior management and at the same time I was, you know, doing some coding analysis and uh, those kinds of things. Uh, as uh, you kind of have to do that until you hire people that, that can do that. Okay. And you get in this interdisciplinary environment, you learn all these other, you know, acronyms and codes and, <laughs> and figure out how to, how to translate that into some, some kind of meaningful analysis. Um, well, it's, that's right. And I think a lot of it, it, it really kind of a very central kind of feature of that whole experience was this idea that other people can do things that feel like magic to you, but to them feel oftentimes fairly straightforward. Uh, because that's what they do, because they're really great in their fields. And reverse roles as well. Um, I had uh, So I worked really closely with Ben Heinsen, who was a co-founder at Quantalife. He was a chemist by training, ultimately was a co-founder with me at 10X, uh, where I would ask Ben, hey, can we can we do something like this? And to me, my, to my mind, it was just kind of a, you know, my, my prior would be that would be very unlikely. And I would say, yeah, sure, it's possible. And sometimes these things would just blow my mind. Uh, about what's possible, and that's um, and uh, so that that was really kind of really powerful. The we built the product, we uh, sh shipped it, started selling um, these instruments and reagents for digital PCR, and then a larger company, Biorad, came over and acquired us. Um, yeah, so Biorad acquires the company. Mm -hmm. uh, you meet some people like Ben. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, did you decide to stay around or at BioRad for a while, or, or were you suddenly now a free agent and looking around for your next gig? We stayed there for a, for a little bit. Uh, we transitioned the product over to BioRad, uh, and they, they had capable people for maintaining and kind of growing the commercial reach of the product. It was very much, very. I think it was a good acquisition from both sides. It was the right thing for BioRad. It is now the flagship product in their portfolio, the Droplet Digital PCR system. And it was the right thing, quite frankly, for Quantalife as well, because we were we were a great R and D uh, company, but scaling commercially is a whole new was going to be a whole new challenge, and so it was the right uh, kind of the right timing, the right uh, the right transition. I stayed Ben and I stayed for uh, about six months with Byrat, and then uh, then we left, and all the executives of Quantalife uh, ultimately one by one left um, to to see you know what else. We could do. I didn't really have any particular specific goals. So by this time, though, you've um, you've worked in that hardware, software, analytics. You know this this uh, interdisciplinary nexus. You, you've learned the tools business. You've met some people. You got some idea of what customers can do with the existing state of the art, whether it's digital droplet PCR or or some of the other tools that they've got. Mm -hmm. But maybe maybe now picking up a little more insight into what's missing and, and what kinds of things, what questions they'd really like to be able to answer? Well, yes. Uh, in many ways, um, you know, my personal interest is always in biology and seeing where what are, what are the big kind of missing pieces and what is it that's necessary to drive, to understand the science better. And uh, sometime, this is middle of 2012, Ben and I got together uh, in a coffee shop and kind of trying to think of like, what, well, what, what should we do next? And should we, maybe should do, should we do something together? And, uh, we had, uh, there's several problems that I had that were in the back of my mind that to my mind just needed, uh, needed addressing the world needed addressing. One, one was, um, for, um, to, to recover long range information from sequencing kind of the, the existing paradigm back then in 2012 and many ways still is, 
uh, is this idea of using uh, short reads, short fragments to, to sequence genomes. And in the process, lots of really important information is lost. And I was keenly aware of precisely what was lost from my days back at 23andMe. Uh, a lot of the really now, now for those for, who are not as familiar, I mean, just really, really basic here. I mean, mm -hmm. th this is the idea that you know, in order to prepare samples for DNA sequencing, they they get chopped up into lots of little pieces and fed into the sequencer, and then the uh, essentially mm -hmm. the overlapping ends of the code get matched up by software, and it reassembles the whole genome, right? But when right. you're using short stretches as your kind of baseline ingredient, some, sometimes those, um, those matches don't, don't turn out right or they get mismatched and you, you, or you miss like huge repeat stretches like in cancer cells, for instance, that have these long bizarro repeat stretches and then the software doesn't know where to put it. For sure. It, it, is, it is exactly that. Uh, think of uh, taking, if the genome is a book, think of taking it through a shredder and uh, trying to piece all the little shreds together and think the genome is actually happens to be an incredibly repetitive book. You've got two very similar copies coming from one from the father, one from the mother, and then through evolution, all kinds of genes get duplicated many different ways at every, at every sort of level of abstraction. So it's a very complex puzzle to put together if you only have little shreds, little pieces to work with. Um, and so that's, uh, that was, uh, that was one of the challenges that, that that seemed very clear to to our minds. Was also, so can you put the pieces together mm -hmm. based on you know lo longer starting blocks <laughs> that, that that will not a, not right. miss um, you know big big stretches and and cause mm -hmm. you to overlook things that are kind of obvious or should be staring you in the face. Mm -hmm. Right, big changes, small changes, this kind of long range information that's that's lost. Very many very important genes are just you cannot see. Um, as a result of that. Um, at the same time, there's also other problems that were clearly uh, important, especially when you look at the world of um, kind of where the biologists were. We're often looking at specific tissue and cell, cell by cell kind of level versus, versus where the world of sequencing and genomics was, which, temp, which all kind of talked about bulk and kind of getting measurements of genomes and expression profiles all in the context of bulk and kind of averaging uh, everything that's going on in a, in a particular tissue. Um, so those kinds of problems were on our minds and we, we realized that, well, they're, a, they're worth addressing and we had some path to, to develop a technology that could uh, address them. Now, this concept of single cell versus averaging is a very important one. I want to make sure people get this. So you know, all throughout the, these years when people were, you know, waxing rhapsodic about DNA sequencing and, and the new tools, what, what essentially was being overlooked is the fact that um, you would take a sample, like let's say a tumor biopsy, and let's just for the sake of argument say there's a million cells in that biopsy. Well, we know there's tumor heterogeneity. There's different, there's different uh, gene mutations in different regions of the tumor. And if all you did was take that sample and kind of throw it around in a blender and take all those short stretches and then sequence them together, you will get um, a, you know, a sequence, but there's a lot of fog in, in that answer. Like a lot of things just getting averaged in and you don't really see 
exactly what that mutation is in one part of the tumor versus a totally different bizarro mutation in another part. Is, is that one way to think of the averaging of For a sure. problem? For sure. Uh, right. Cancer, like specifically thinking about the cancer example, cancer is really a really complex mixture. It's a population of many different cells, uh, all of which are the most of which are different from each other. Looking, and that's ultimately what makes cancer deadly is those small clones, those small populations of cells that you might be missing. You're drugging your main kind of clones, and uh, you're trying to chase. Um, you're trying to chase the all the different uh, all the different populations there, and that's that really is what makes it. The complexity is what makes it dangerous, and the conventional way of doing genomic analysis essentially misses that complexity. Um, I would say even further, when you look at going beyond genome and look at all the downstream measurements like gene expression, like protein analysis, cells are supposed to, individual cells, kind of by definition, they're supposed to differ from each other. The genome of normal cells from a single person more or less t stays static uh, for the most part, you know, of course there are exceptions. To that, but gene expression is meant to differ. But these are RNA molecules that get produced on the on the basis of uh, of your genome. But since the beginning of molecular biology, we've essentially going back you know many decades, we've essentially ignored the concept. And whenever measuring gene expression, we would take all the cells in your sample, in your tissue, mix the contents like in the blender, like you were saying, and get an average profile. In many ways, that defeats the whole purpose of measuring gene expression in the first place, because we know cells are supposed to differ. Um, so you and Ben, you're thinking about long-range sequencing and single-cell analysis. Like, could we look at individual cells in high resolution and, and somehow, you know, put them together in a, in a context like a, t a larger tissue? And so you can see fine-grained differences between cells that are working, you know, in, in close networks. That was very much, that was the idea initially, kind of the application, the area we wanted to go after. And uh, again, remember this was middle of 2012. We had some initial idea. Ben came up with the concept of how we, we could address this problem and centered around uh, putting together um, uh, what what was called a micro well array of uh, of wells and uh, and uh, and barcodes, and that was enough of an idea for us to uh, to go to some investors and raise some seed funding. Okay, so 2012, you guys are just uh, you get some seed funding. You're you remain stealthy for some time because I remember actually first talking to you. Mm -hmm. I looked this up. It's just mm -hmm. it was the beginning of 2015 when you finally came out of stealth mode and you had raised some money, uh, like $50 million from Venrock and I think Morgan Stanley and a couple of other well-known firms. And suddenly, like, now you're announcing that you're in business and you're soon going to have a commercial product. Uh, I'm sure a lot happened to get you to even that point. But And one of the key things was you know, getting introduced, getting to know people like John Stolpnagel, um, who was a co-founder of Illumina. And the thing that I remember most about that very first conversation you and I had was, uh, well, that you were involved with a lot of first-rate people, but um, you had also made 
the strategic decision to not try to supplant Illumina. Illumina had this huge installed base with gene expression and, and DNA sequencing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people had tried to knock them off that pedestal and failed. And I had covered a lot of those companies. Mm -hmm. And here you guys came along and said, no, 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 we're not going to try to, uh, you know, defeat the, the Windows Intel monopoly, so to speak. <laughs> we're we're going to make a, a device and a, a set of chemistries and, and downstream analysis that will work on top of that. So we'll sell you, and I think you guys called it a toaster oven at the time, which was a nice little image. Like it didn't scare people anyway. <laughs> Can you talk about like the, the, the strategy that, how, how did you guys think about that challenge of taking this thing commercial? Right. Um, so uh, kind of going back to the, the, the point you made about uh, Illumina and not competing against them. This was uh, at the beginning when we first started the company. In fact, that was one of our core precepts. We saw that sequencing was going to get next generation sequencing back then was already starting to become prevalent, but we saw it increasing in its prevalence and its ubiquity. And we saw that there's lots of things you can build, uh, assuming if you kind of fast forward the clock and assume this, um, this access sees uh, sequencing as kind of as a utility, there's lots of applications, lots of products you can build given that premise. We also saw Illumina was uh, doing a great job of building sequencers and innovating. There was no reason, no point really to try to build yet another sequencer. We were aware of many companies, there were many startups that were trying to do the same, that, and didn't seem to make uh, a lot of sense. But what was missing is kind of the applications of, of sequencing. I think we our, our view is that that core capability, that high throughput approach to generating DNA, to reading DNA information could be applied in many different contexts. And, uh, and of course, it, it made sense that, again, you don't building on top of what Illumina has already put into the market instead of competing with them. We did. We were very much stealth through the first sort of three years of, of the company's history. And um, uh, that was... Uh, we were very much focused on uh, just getting the products to work. There was a huge technical challenges we identified early on. In fact, I remember in our first initial set of slides that we showed our investors when we were raising seed, seed funds, there was a slide that, you know, that outlined technical challenges that we'll have to resolve. And the investors asked, so how are you going to solve them? And we said, well, we don't know. That's why we need the money. And uh, it was, uh, uh, it was, and, you know, there was many times during that process where you were, if maybe we, if we had been in the context of a large company, you'd almost turn back because they just seemed too hard. But we were determined to make, to make it work and uh, had to solve many fundamental R&D issues to get a product um, to, to work. And this was towards the end of 2014 when things really started coming together that, um, that's when we announced ourselves. And that was actually driven by, um, to some extent, we, by J.P. Morgan. They, they, they invited us to present at that conference, and that was our kind of big um, coming out party back in early 2015. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys, um, you and Ben were, you know, first-time entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had some track record there with Quantalife and mm -hmm. 23andMe in your case. Did you get some help from, you know, the, the Silicon Valley network uh, with, with making introductions and saying, you know, I, I think these guys will figure it out? 
Well, to a large extent, because we had the track record, we could uh, turn to our previous investors and friends uh, who gave us, uh, who who invested. And then um, as we were scaling the company, I think to a large extent, as we were building, as we we're showing our progress, that was um, evidence for, for some of our investors that we, we knew what we were doing. In many ways, uh, bringing John Stupnagel aboard was something that was really important. We were really fortunate to get an amazing group of people pretty early into the company as we we're getting going. And I wanted to to add a kind of senior mentorship to our team, to myself. I'd never been a CEO before and uh, talk to quite a large number of people. But once you once you talk to John, it's pretty clear he is one of those uh, a unique person in terms of his his breadth and his depth of uh, of knowledge and understanding across life sciences. Uh, he was, um, I was trying to get him to join the board and he was initially uh, somewhat busy, but he stayed in touch with us. And as he saw the progress that we're making, he ended up uh, joining us as the chairman. And he was, he's been valuable too, to kind of giving the credibility to the company, especially early in the early days as we're getting going to getting investors and, uh, and other, um, other people on board. Yeah, John's kind of a quiet guy, but he's a real force behind the scenes. Like he was chief operating officer at Illumina and really knew how that all went together. Uh, absolutely. And he was one of the key people, maybe the key person for putting together the product development process at Illumina, which ultimately, if you think about what is the source of Illumina's advantage, it is this ability to innovate and uh, develop products at a really fast and consistent sort of cadence. And we, in fact, at 10X, in many ways, we took those, a lot of those learnings. He's been an integral part of uh, putting together the processes and the culture we have at 10X to build new products, to innovate, and, um, and you know, kind of to take it to the next level. I think when I, when I think about some of our core advantages, it is that innovation engine that has served us so well. So you started with the linked read, long read product. Uh, that first year, I guess, 2015, 16 or so, uh, what, uh, what kind of feedback did you get from the market? You know, there was, it's interesting. There was a lot of excitement because people had been thinking about the, the need for structural uh, and long range information for a long time. And we came in with a product that showed them that they could get that kind of data without having to invest in a new sequencer. Right, so that was now, PacBio, for context, PacBio had been selling this idea of long-range sequences to to the invest to the scientific community, but you had to buy their whole system, which was seven hundred thousand dollars, and it, it was a lot of extra effort to try to operate it. You guys were coming along and saying, "No, no, no, we've got a thing that plugs and plays. It's compatible with what you already have, the Illumina system." Exactly, exactly. And the thing with PacBio too, there, you know, there's the Trade-offs that you have to make, they deliver, it's a, it's a great system for getting some long-range information, but you have to compromise in terms of some of the accuracy profiles and the throughput and the cost. Whereas with our system, you can you get the convenience of the workflow that you're already used to with Illumina. You don't need to make a huge new investment. And all in terms of the specifications, the accuracy, the throughput, the cost, kind of building on top of the advantage that Illumina had. Uh, so... It was, uh, yeah, we had a lot of enthusiasm uh, from um, all the key kind of people in the field. And it was, uh, that, was, that was a fun, fun launch that we had. So you're actually, uh, you know, generating decent revenue early on? 
uh, we were, um, and <laughs> but the, the the thing is uh, with with 10x we've you know we've grown really fast, and uh, in terms of just building the products, so if you think from you know Ben and I kind of starting out in the middle of 2012, it took us less than three years altogether to ship the first product. And so the commercial side of the business, let's say, <laughs> wasn't quite as uh, as mature as uh, as maybe the R and D side was. In fact, we hired our first uh, sales person, our sales leader, uh, just about two weeks before we started shipping our product. So <laughs> there are some challenges we had to uh, to overcome just scaling the whole part of the of the business, the organization, and that 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 complexity. Okay. Okay. So you're learning uh, mm-hmm. from the market, and and but coming back to that question, what kind of feedback did you hear that first couple of years that kind of led to your next couple of moves? Well, so you know, if you're asking about the single cell uh, product, which we ended up launching in 2016, the thought process there started actually long before we went commercial with the first product. As uh, as I mentioned, we were that was actually conceived of at the very beginning of the company, and at the the end of twenty fourteen, we decided that we were going to start working on this uh, on the single cell gene expression product. Um, and again, to remind you, this was before we even announced ourselves to the world with our link read product. So it was really in the absence before we had any kind of feedback from the market on our first product. We decided to go in and develop gene expression. There's a lot of considerations, strategic considerations around that. We felt like it was going to be a massively useful capability that that could transform the way the biology is done. We felt like we had the resources to do it, and um, and uh, we we didn't want to wait. And so we started building it, and that in many ways that contributed to the kind of the stress that we had during that commercial year. When in addition to building on the commercial team, launching a first year, we're also at the same time working on this major new product line to to launch in 2016. Yeah. And again, um, you guys weren't the first and only to think of single cell analysis. I mean, Helicos was out years before trying to do something like this. Didn't work out. I don't know. Maybe it was too soon. Um what, what do you think enabled you to get some traction when it was your turn? So I think the key aspect to appreciate about single cell analysis is uh, that you need scale. The right way to think about uh, about this whole field is that it's not so much about analyzing any given cell or a handful of cells, but it's really converting your conventional experiments where you're taking this tissue and analyzing it in bulk contest. But now instead of doing that, analyze all the individual cells or a very large fraction of the individual cells in parallel from that tissue. Um, and that requires throughput, that requires scale. You need to be able to see, get gene expression profiles across thousands to tens of thousands of cells in a single experiment. It's got to be fast, it's got to be cheap, and it's got to, you know, get you enough cells to provide what you would think of as context. Yes. And all the kind of technologies that had come before us, you know, we're analyzing maybe a handful of cells at a time. And their Fluidan, which was the company that kind of pushed down below the furthest, was getting to something like 70, maybe 80 cells in a single experiment at a fairly significant cost. And uh, we came in and our our products enabled thousands of uh, cells in a single experiment, up to hundreds of thousands or more. And that was that was really crucial 
um, point. And your business model, is it, is it still pretty much like kind of razor, razor blade? Like you, you have to buy the piece of hardware and then you, you need the reagents, the consumable chemicals to keep running experiments through it? Yeah, yes, very much so. I, I, I think it has worked well for us. Uh, we sell instruments, that's a source of upfront revenue. And then we sell consumables to go along um, with, uh, with the instrument for different applications. And, um, and that presents a source of recurring revenue for us. As we add more applications, more product lines that work with these instruments, we end up, it kind of ends up boosting our you know, potential of revenue per instrument. Yeah, so once you've built out that installed base, you need to just keep making your your applications better and better and better, add more and more applications, mm-hmm. and pretty soon, like your, your customers are, are hooked on your product, or they're become to be huge switching costs, as we've seen in, in the case of Illumina. I, uh, in many ways, that's right. I mean, our goal is to keep um, increasing our install base, and at the same time, to keep adding more applications to make our existing instruments more and more useful for our customers. And that's that has been kind of borne out in the market over the last couple of years. Well, now this is, leads nicely into that last year or so when, like I was saying at the beginning, I was kind of surprised at how well you guys have done. Um, you've you've got a whole suite of of products and applications now. You're looking on your website. There's epigenetics analysis. There's spatial genomics. Uh, you know, more context essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how how much um, how, how much have you grown in the past year? Can you can you talk a little bit about the finances? I know you're still a private company, but right. So I can tell you in terms of our on a commercial just revenue side, we're talking about 2015. So that was a partial year when we went commercial. We we had three million dollars in revenue. The following year, 2016, that was the year when we really kind of got I'd say traction, meaningful traction. That was 28 million. In revenue, 2017 was 71, and then last year was 146, so more than doubled. Uh, so yeah, the the scaling has been has been rapid and tremendous. Um, and then the other side, it's it's obviously it's awesome to get the revenue and the sort of the money flowing to the business. Uh, we also keep track of publications that are coming out uh, of customers' labs, and I would say 2018 especially was in many ways an inflection year where just about, you know, just about every day, a major new paper comes out, has been coming out in science, cell, nature, where the researchers are making like fundamental new discovery using our tools, using our products. And uh, you look at that because why? Because that's a leading indicator for, you know, people being happy customers and ordering more? Uh, absolutely, right. The, that's the kind of thing that makes, A, that means the products are working, producing useful things. and ultimately speaks to the mission of the company. We're impacting biological research. We're enabling new discoveries, new understanding of biology. It is also very much a leading indicator because publications is what other customers look to when making their purchase decisions. Now you did a couple of acquisitions over the last year, Uh, you know, You've got outposts now in different countries around the world. I think you got something like 400 employees. Um, this is quite a bigger thing. I'm guessing this is maybe bigger than you and Ben even thought in the beginning. Um, <laughs> what um, uh, 
What do you think you're up against or what's the thing that you you worry about as CEO of this company? So my sense, and you know, it's it's interesting when you look at historically when we started the company, kind of it was again mostly the fact that Ben and I wanted to work together, and we thought it was going to be like really fun, and we could do some really good, build some really cool products. As the company scaled, as we attracted all, all amazing people, the our view of the company uh, changed, and it kind of evolved into something much more ambitious. In fact, at every decision fork, whenever we face a decision to be made within the company, historically, we've always chosen the more ambitious path. And it's this feeling where it went from being a project to being a company to being a really important company to where I feel like this is one of the most meaningful companies that can exist because we're enabling many ways we're driving the frontiers of biology. And the there's really no limit that I'm seeing ahead of us in terms of ceilings on growth. We have many applications and there are many products in development, many decades worth of products we want to build going forward. And really the main constraint on growth is uh, managing the culture as we grow. That is the, the biggest thing that's on my mind. Um, I learned pretty clearly it's that we you have to be very very thoughtful and very intentional. You can't let the culture stay static because the kinds of things you do when you there's only a few of you are very different from the way you function when there's hundreds of you. Uh, but at the same time, you do want to to keep some of these core elements, that sense of urgency, that sense of innovation, that's that's core to to us and to to the company to keep it. And so that means you can't grow too fast, or at least I haven't figured out yet. And that's that I would say is the main constraint and the main thing that keeps me up in terms of preserving and managing that. What's the, what's the right rate of growth? Don't, don't die of growing pains. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I've looked at this historically and I, they, that's exactly right. And I think funny enough, I think our rate of growth is roughly Moore's law <laughs> where it would double something like every 18 months. Yeah, you know, people think of that in tech businesses or consumer facing tech businesses. There's all these stories of what we look at that we think of as overnight successes, which really aren't. But, <laughs> um, you know, this is this is something with, uh, you know, physical goods, both hardware and software that you guys offer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, it should be enduring and defensible. I mean, as long as you're um, continuing to provide value to those those researchers and and maybe even clinicians at some point uh, absolutely that's that's how we that's how we think of the company from the beginning in fact that was the the central challenge when we first started the company that kept me up at night the minimal viable size for the for our, for our kind of company is pretty substantial because we needed to have deep expertise in several different areas hardware, chemistry, biology, computation, software, and just getting that initial group together and like really deep expertise. I mean, we had to innovate and push state, the state of the art across all these different disciplines just to get our initial products to work. And that multidisciplinary kind of approach to problem solving is in many ways the core of what we do at 10X. And it's yeah. It's the it's the thing that has made us successful so far. It, it is what gives me confidence going forward, and 
it is a very much the core of our you know, competitive advantage, like you said, because to 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 build something to replace us requires all kinds of different expertise to be brought together, and that's it's that's very challenging. There's high barriers to entry, and yeah. and I know people look at things like intellectual property, like individual patents here and there, and you know in this business people sue each other a lot and you know, you win some and you lose some, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think sometimes people can lose the forest for the trees there. Um, in that, you know, when a company is really interdisciplinary, um, and has all these specialized skills under one roof, it's more about how those parts work together. Uh, and sort of like that, that's the trade secret, secret, secret <laughs> sauce. Uh, than than any single piece, um, so so yeah, I suppose some venture firm could come along and put two hundred million dollars into a competitor that wants to be just like Ten X Genomics, but uh, it, it would take a while, put it that way, to 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 mount a meaningful challenge. I think uh, exactly, and that's again, it's not it's not just about the money. In fact, the money is a pretty minor element in this whole uh, in this whole enterprise. It is really about that secret <laughs> and secret sauce of having awesome people and having the right process and the right culture that can build amazing things together. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I need to ask because some investors out there probably want to know, um, it, got any plans to go public anytime soon? <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> the goal, and I'll give you the same answer that I give to, to investors who ask, uh, look, our goal is to to build a very large company. I think this is this could be one of the most meaningful companies uh, out there, and uh, in and I in the service of that, like the goal the goal is to build a large company. It may entail going public because it can help you scale the company, but we will will make that decision when it's time to make that decision. But it's going to be in the service of that goal as opposed to an end in itself. Yeah, you, you're um, focused on running the business, exactly. uh, focusing internally uh, and, and to the customer base. Yes. Um, that that would add a whole other layer of complexity to your life, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, uh, sure. But, you know, this, uh, this has been a journey of complexity, ever-increasing complexity, so not something that worries me necessarily. <laughs> All right, Serge. Thanks very much for joining me today on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. It was fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.